Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, guys, I got a joke for you. Okay. I think it's funny. Why does a moon rock taste better than an earth rock? I don't know. Why? Because it's a little meatier. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download: Culture, Food, and Humor to Fuel Your Weekend Conversations. You just got a joke from Titus Burgess, star of Netflix's Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. That'll help break the ice. And later, we'll speak with Damon Lindelof, co-creator of Lost and the acclaimed drama The Leftovers which has its season finale this weekend. Also coming up, the band Phoenix stops by to DJ a cosmopolitan party. We learn about Gertrude Bell, the most important explorer you've never heard of. Also, we say goodbye to late great sports journalist Frank DeFord. But first, let's start with small talk. All week long, you've heard these headlines. The president announcing the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant. Jared Kushner asked for a back-channel communication between the Trump transition team and the Kremlin. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor to the lovely literary magazine, The Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I thought I would talk about the phenomenon of naked school. Naked School. I would, too. Naked School. Is this a, is this a movie coming out this summer? <laughs> R-rated thriller? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Going to lose a lot of money. Um, what it is, actually, is uh, Tokyo Bathhouse's phenomenon to revive the ancient culture of communal bathing. Okay. So naked School is how they're going to revive this tradition. Yeah. So I guess people no longer bathe communally because they could bathe at home? Exactly. Now that everyone has at-home baths and indoor plumbing, there's much less reason to congregate and as such kind of an ancient oh. tradition and a lot of socializing is being lost. But So where does the naked school part come in? So as a result, one bathhouse owner is starting classes which people attend naked in which they are lectured about everything from uh, comedy to gaming to the proliferation of feral cats. Um, and they're naked, and um, they are hoping that this is going to cause a real boom in bathhouse attendance. Forget, and- forget communal baths. <laughs> I think this would work in increasing attendance in college. Well, no, there's nothing like <laughs> lecturing like- and homework to make someone want to go somewhere voluntarily. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it, it does seem like it would be unique. What isn't more fun naked, I suppose, is their thinking, or how can nudity become universal? Universalized and unsexy. Maybe that's another part of the thing. What about maybe they should branch into driving lessons? Naked driving lessons? Yeah, something you have to do. Which is something I'm doing right now. And I can tell you that is maybe the one thing that could make it even worse. (laughs) Well, teach her own. We tried. All right, Sadie Stein, thanks for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now for some well-dressed cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's like history's a watering can, drizzling booze. Hmm. Plants happy or sad? Who knows? First, the history. (laughs) Back in 1930, Pluto was officially named. And we're not talking about the Disney character. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. For something we're now told isn't a planet, folks sure worked hard to discover Pluto. It started in the 1840s, when scientists noted the planet Uranus had a strange orbit. Something had to be pulling on it. They soon figured out what it was. Another hitherto undiscovered planet, Neptune. 
But Neptune didn't seem big enough to entirely account for Uranus's orbit. Another planet was probably out there too. So in 1906, millionaire Percival Lowell launched a project to find what he called Planet X. From the observatory Lowell founded in Arizona, his team searched the skies for decades. Finally, one night, 14 years after Lowell's death, astronomer Clyde Tombaugh was looking at two pictures of a star field taken weeks apart. Using what's called a blink comparator, he toggled them back and forth and saw one dim star move. Eureka! It was Planet X. Folks around the world wrote to Lowell Observatory suggesting names for the new planet. At one point, Constance Lowell, Percival's widow, humbly suggested Constance. But an 11-year-old British schoolgirl finally came up with the winning name, Pluto, the ancient god of the cold and distant underworld. And it didn't hurt that the first two letters were Percival Lowell's initials. The girl got a measly five pounds sterling for her contribution, but in retrospect, that was probably fair. Today, most scientists agree Neptune is the sole cause of Uranus's orbit, and Pluto is just one of many dwarf planets in the solar system. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to pair along with it, we are joined by Nick Williams. He is the head bartender at Tinderbox Annex in Flagstaff, Arizona, under the shadow of the Lowell Observatory. Is that right, Nick? That's correct. It's about, I'd say, three miles at the most from the observatory. You ever get concerned that they are staring at you and what's going on in your bar? <laughs> Occasionally we wonder, <laughs> you know, get that feeling on the back of your neck. So tell me what's in your drink. I wanted to do a martini, so I decided to go with the nice Juniper Rich Smalls American Dry Gin. Okay. And it works well because there's uh, juniper berries that grow naturally all over the Southwest. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. And I went with, uh, to pair with it, the Ransom Dry Vermouth. And you're in a dry climate there. So absolutely. Yeah, so it all works. So after researching the uh, Roman god Pluto, I uh, came upon the story that he had tricked the goddess of vegetation, Persephone, into eating his cursed pomegranate, which therefore bound her to the underworld with him for a third of the year, every year. So I'm going to throw muddle together about 10 plump pomegranate seeds, as well as uh, rosemary to bring it all together and bring the earthy richness of the uh, dry vermouth and the gin as well. Do your friends call you Nicopedia? (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't gotten that one yet. It's pretty, you're you're pretty knowledgeable. (laughs) So then after that, you're going to need to shake it really well. About 45 seconds, I usually tell people about until your hand starts sticking to the metal. All right. (laughs) And then so you're going to strain it into the martini glass. Okay. And so it all comes together. And a lemon twist as well. I wrap the lemon twist around the rosemary as a garnish. Okay. And so it just all comes together perfectly to to make this cocktail that I could definitely see uh, Clyde Tombaugh, the guy who actually did discover Pluto in 1930, and good old Percy Lowell having together celebrating their accomplishments, you know. So I have a question. You've been in Flagstaff for a little bit. People Have people accepted the fact that Pluto is no longer a planet? I think it's sort of an unspoken thing around here, you know. like <laughs> We still like to think of it as a planet. It may be a dwarf, but it's still a planet. <laughs> 
cosmic drink from Nick Williams of Tinderbox Kitchen Annex in Flagstaff, Arizona. And folks, we played you that spacey tale to get you in the mood for an hour-long special that we're rolling out the weekend of June 23rd. It's called Look Up and Listen, and it's designed to be listened to outside under the stars. That's right. You'll hear Rico and I get exiled into the wilderness where guests like astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson have to guide us home. Spoiler alert, we survived. Yeah, but it's still fun to listen to. For sure. more information, head to dinnerpartydownload.org slash live. So we've made some small talk, had a drink, now for some music. And here with that are Tomas Mars and Laurent Bronkowitz, a.k.a. Bronco, of the French band Phoenix. Their blend of rock, disco, and abstract lyrics has made their music the soundtrack for dance parties from Tokyo to their hometown of Paris. Their 2009 album Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix went gold and won them a Grammy. Here they are with song suggestions for a très cool dinner party. Bonjour, or bonsoir, if it's dinner. Bonsoir. My name is Thomas. Uh, je suis Bronco, I'm Bronco. We are half of the band Phoenix. And the reason we're here is we have a dinner party soundtrack. Because we have an album that's out soon-ish. We only eat when uh, the release of a new album. That's a tradition. Every four years. <laughs> so I guess we'll start off with a classic Italian track. Ornella Vanoni, L'Apputamento. Ho sbagliato tante volte ormai che lo so già very uh, beautiful track to, for appetizers. It's actually a, a cover of a Brazilian song. So it's kind of Brazil seen through the eyes of Italia. I like the fact that this song uh, has elements of joy, but also of sadness. The dinner party with your friends, it just unifies everything that's good about life, which is a pretty uh, embarrassing experience in general. But those moments, those little gems, they make it all worthwhile. Is Chikoria more main course or dessert? Chikoria is sushi. Of course, there will be sushi because we are big sushi fans. And to me, the best sushi music is this Chikoria album. And this song in particular, which is a three-part song, El Bozo. Maybe Bronco would disagree, but I think that for your main course, music shouldn't be too distracting. It's not like, like, wait, 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 I need to hear this bridge. It's not that kind of music. We heard it in, uh, in, in Tokyo, this album. They played the whole album in a sushi last floor of a very tall building. And it was very, very weird and very cool. It's an album about Spain done by this crazy like uh, jazz funk uh, guy and when you listen to it you can hear you know the the genesis of all the music of the video games the Nintendo video games 
Our third song for the dinner party would be Brian Ferry's Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. They asked me how are you My true love was true To me, I associated with a party because of Brian Ferry's personality, because of the just the album cover. He's in a white tuxedo. He's the perfect ultimate host. He's the only guy who can purr like you know, like a cat, like purr like a wild animal, but that's gently welcoming you into his trap. All who love are blind. When your heart's on fire, you must be alive. Smoke gets in your eyes. I had no respect for, you know, uh, covers or even, you know, singers that w weren't songwriters. I learned that very, very late in my life. There is genius in interpretation. So we were asked to pick one of our songs to the party, which is something we would never do. So if we are forced, which song would, would you pick, Thomas? If we are forced, we, we would pick Fior di Latte. First it's dessert, so that's an obvious choice. It's more pure, it's more naive. It's the it's almost like the bass and when you're tired of all everything else that's added, just go to the most pure, the most simple emotion. Party soundtrack from Tomas Mars and Bronco, one half of the band Phoenix. Their new album is called Tiamo, and it comes out this week. Not sure I'd put sushi and Fiori de Latte on the same menu, but I guess they're French. So yeah, they must know what they're doing. Of course. Uh, people coming up, Damon Lindelof, co-creator of HBO's The Leftovers, makes a prediction. By the end of this interview, we're getting someone in the hot tub. We'll see if he's right when the dinner party download <laughs> continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your arts and culture guide to the weekend. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, 60s pop star Lynn Castle recalls a proposal she was wise to turn down. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Damon Lindelof. Mm -hmm. He co-created the ABC series Lost, widely considered one of the greatest TV shows ever. Yeah. He also wrote installments of the Alien and Star Trek movie franchises. But most recently, he co-created HBO's The Leftovers, along with Tom Parada, who wrote the book it's based on. It is about a family living in the aftermath of an unexplained event in which 2% of the world's population suddenly vanish without a trace. 
In a way, it's a study of how people deal with grief and loss. In this clip from the first episode, a woman whose baby disappeared and a man who lost his wife meet by chance at a bar. Where were you? When it happened, where were you? I was in my house, cleaning out a gutter. Oh. Where were you? I was in a parking lot at the laundromat. Hey, we're still here. We sure are. Since it debuted in 2014, critics have called The Leftovers one of the best shows on TV. The series finale airs this weekend. Before Damon and I talked about the show, though, I reminded him we have a past. It is wonderful to be here. Um, So normally, we ask all our guests a standard question, which is tell us something we don't know. But I'm just going to say right at the top here, probably many people don't know that you and I were both on the writing staff together for the MTV show Undressed. Yes. Back in like 2000 or something. It just hit me, yes. (laughs) That was... That was in like 98, man. Was like it 98, 98 or, or 99? I don't want to think that far back. And we had like, we had to write 36 episodes a in day. six weeks. <laughs> and every three scenes, we had to figure out a way to get people into a hot tub. <laughs> That's right. And which is the same on the leftovers, by the way. Uh, oddly enough, <laughs> that's not true. Yeah, for it, those who don't know, this oh is a, this God. is a show. It was basically a late night MTV soap opera for teens with a lot of sex in it. It's twenty years ago. That was about twenty years ago. Oh my God! The, by the uh, the thing I most remember from that show is Steve Denight, who was our head uh, writer. That's right. We'd say, I, I don't know how what should happen next in this scene, and he wouldn't even read it. He would just say, Pop the top. Yep, get someone's top off. <laughs> Absolutely, male, female, didn't matter. Equal so, opportunity. So here's my question to you. Oh, boy. Well, it's not that hard a question, but yeah. is there anything that you took from writing that show into the rest of your writing career on, you know, massive sci-fi epics? Absolutely. And I'm not just spinning it because the amazing thing about that show was we had three sets, right? So, and the way that Undressed work was there, there were three different storylines. There was a high school storyline, there was a college storyline, and then there was like a just graduated storyline. And we were all writing scenes in each storyline, but they kind of had had to oddly interconnect, but they all had to just take place on this set. Yeah, and like I think the that, entire high school storyline had to be on like one set. Right. And so the limitations and the speed at which you had to write was great boot camp because it's like that scene in Apollo 13 where, you know, they're running out of oxygen up there and the dude just walks into the room and dumps out like a box of stuff and says like, this is, we have to make like a filtration system out of this. This is all we have. And one guy's like, could we use a pen? It's like, they don't have a pen up there. Yeah. So I think that so once I started writing for bigger budget movies or, you know, network drama, it almost feels like you can kind of do whatever you want. But returning to that idea of like limitations are a very good thing. Sometimes you, you need to know where the walls are. Limitations and deadlines are a writer's best friend, I think. Yes, although it does help to have just if you do come up with a great idea to have as much money as possible to throw at it budget-wise. That, 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 that seems to be the case. And yet like the best movie I've seen in the last year is Get Out. You know, and so like, can you put that movie side by side with Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is a great movie, but cost one hundred and seventy million dollars more and say that it's one hundred and seventy million dollars better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's like, what's Jordan Peele going to do next? You know, I'd love to see him get his hands on a $150 million movie. And I'm sort of like, eh, I don't know. Is that a good thing? Yeah, yeah, maybe um, that'll so, be. And, and we have seen this many a time. A lot of people talk about indie film as being like a boot camp right. now for major motion pictures. And then you see people flame out when they get those budgets. Not just flame out, but it's sort of like, you know, Colin Trevorrow makes a great, cool movie like Safety Not Guaranteed. And then... He, now he's doing Star Wars films, and that's great. I want Colin Trevorrow or Ryan Johnson to be making Star Wars films, but at the same time, I also want to see what their follow-ups to, you know, Looper and Safety Not Guaranteed are. More personal films. Right. Um, I just want to say, by the end of this interview, we're getting someone in the hot tub. Right. We have to figure it out together for old time's sake. <laughs> That'll be weird on public radio. We can just do it by bringing up a sound effect. That's exactly pretend right. pretend we're in one right now. Oh, man, you've ruined the illusion. You've Sorry. taken away the magic. Uh, <laughs> but let's talk about the kind of sci-fi that you do which tends to be, well, let's just say that one of your earliest influences you've said was Twin Peaks, very ambiguous, weird dreamlike thing. Yes. Lost had a similar kind of ambiguous mystery at the heart of it. Right. You've said that that's one of the attractions to you of The Leftovers is that it's this, and everybody's living in this ambiguous world where there is no resolution. Just like the real world, yeah. Why are you so attracted to that? As frustrating as it may be for others, I've always been drawn into the story that, that, has an interpretive ending, the book that has the last 10 pages ripped out. Um, I've told this story before, but not terribly recently, which is there were these books called Encyclopedia Brown books where there were these little mysteries. Encyclopedia Brown was a boy detective. And at the end of the case, it would be like, how did Encyclopedia know that Bugs Meanie stole his bike? And then you'd flip to the end and it would tell you what the giveaway was. Yeah. And my dad caught me basically like flipping to the end before I'd even really thought it out. So he ripped out all of the answers mm-hmm. in my Encyclopedia Brown books. And so wow. I, was, I would go to him and be like, I- is this how he found out? And my dad would be like, oh, I don't know. I, I threw those pages away. <laughs> so I just have to sort of sit there thinking like, I think I got it, but I'm not sure. So this and is I, how you grew up basically. Yeah, but I'm still catalyzed by, you know, uh, like making a murderer or a serial or S Town, those stories don't have fixed endings because they're real. And there is this idea of reality of just like never knowing. I kind of figured you'd say that. But on the other <laughs> hand, the reason why people go to see narratives and the reason why narratives have such a pull on us, I think, is because they're a way to organize the world in a way that it isn't in reality. So you go into a story wanting some order. You want a beginning, middle, and end. So it seems like if you're not ever going to give them that payoff at the end, you're working at a disadvantage from the beginning. You are giving them something else, though. Like you take a movie like the original Blade Runner that ends with a, a high degree of ambiguity and even Ridley Scott's director's cut, even more so. This idea of like, well, was Decker a replicant? That's the Harrison Ford character. We're not going to tell you. And, you know, Blade Runner comes out, it bombs, you know, but here we are. Uh, mm. 30 years later, anticipating the return to that world. There's a sequel but coming out. I just think that's another way to tell stories. There, you, you know, there's got to be room for both both ways of doing it. Let's talk about actually the writing of this show. You burn through the plot of the book, I think, in the first season. Yep. So now you're free to sort of take it wherever you want to. And it does, because it has this ambiguous quality and because there's an almost stream of consciousness thing to it, I wonder how much of it was plotted meticulously out in advance or how much you're just kind of going with the flow. It feels like something very organic. Season by season, there has to be a plan. Well, that's the thing about television storytelling is you don't really know what pace it's you're going to be chewing through it until you're actually engaged in it. The story that I love is that 24, the television show, 
they basically pitch that show so that the first season, Jack Bauer finds out there's going to be an, an assassination attempt on the president's life. And in episode 24, he thwarts that assassination. Right. He ended up thwarting it in episode six. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, we've got 16 episodes to go post thwarting. What do we do now? <laughs> so I, I like being in charted ca- territory. I like it when I'm approaching an episode and I don't quite know what to do and you have to kind of fumble your way through it. Really? You like it? I that do like, like it. like stress beyond imagination. It is stressful, but it's also the most exciting thing about about storytelling is discovery when i watch an episode of mr robot or fargo or legion or transparent i'm like what is gonna what's the next episode gonna be you know there's an episode of transparent from this last season that revolves around a turtle or a tortoise i think it's a turtle and it just like devastated me i mean my wife and i watched it and we just looked at each other and we're like something beautiful just happened and we we were completely not expecting it that's the kind of thing that i'm chasing is is you know this idea of discovery the unfathomable the indescribable i can't explain to you why that turtle moment is so great but i can almost guarantee if you just watch that one episode even if you don't watch transparent you'll understand that something incredibly special just happened um we already got an answer to our first standard question which is tell us something we don't know our second question is if we were to meet you at a dinner party what question should we not ask you oh my god uh were you making it up as you went along which you've already asked me here because (laughs) no no it's Because you shouldn't ask it to me, not because I don't want to answer it, but you're going to get my speech um, and and you're going to hate me even more than you already do probably before you ask the question. Why is that? Your speech was great. No, no. uh, my, My response to that at a party is, you know, is people actually only ask me two questions. One is, were you making it up as you went along? And the other is, how much input do the fans have? Um, and they want the answer to, were you making it up as you go along, to be no. We had a plan. There was a binder. There was a blueprint. We followed it to the letter. There was no spontaneity. There was no winging it. We we knew what we were doing right. every step of the way. That's yeah. the way that we want mom and dad to answer that question. That's the way that we want our leadership and the country to answer that question. There, it, There's a plan. Question number two, how much impact do the fans have? They want the answer to that question to be like, a lot. We listen to everything you say. If you don't like something or a character, we'll kill them off. If something's too confusing to you, if the pace, we will adjust based on your input. Nobody wants to hear, I don't care what you think. The fans have no impact on the storytelling whatsoever. Um, And no one one can identify the paradox between these two answers. Because if there is a plan, if there is a binder, if there is a blueprint, then the fans have zero impact. But if you want to have impact on the storytelling, then there can't yeah. be a plan that we won't deviate from. Yeah. And then I say this, and as I'm talking to people, I can start to see their fate. They get them getting angrier and angrier and angrier at me. Um, and then like, I my, just asked you a question. And then my man. wife politely squeezes my elbow and gets me out of there. Poor, poor Heidi, my wife, has to hear that speech over and over and over again. And now all of America has as well. All of America. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, really good to be here, and let's go hop in that hot tub. Damon Lindelof, he co-created the HBO series The Leftovers. The show's last ever episode airs this weekend. There'll be no leftover leftovers? I guess not. 
Alas. It'll be a director's cut. Okay. No. Uh, but look, that's not the last everyone will hear of Damon. If you subscribe to our podcast, you can download a special bonus show in which Damon tells us, among other things, why Gary Busey is a modern prophet. Oh, yes. Yep. You can search for the Dinner Party download on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. Time to eavesdrop. In the 60s, Lynn Castle was the go-to hairstylist for LA's music scene. The birds, Sonny and Cher, and the monkeys came to call her the Lady Barber, but in addition to heads, she also cut a few tracks. Only two of her songs ever got a release, and that changes Friday, when Light in the Attic Records releases the first ever LP of her music. Lynn's also starting to share some stories from her life. Today we overhear her recall two of her early loves. My name is Lynn Castle. A lot of people like to know about the part Phil Spector played in my life. I met him when we were both really young, before he actually became so well known with To Know Him As To Love Him, Phil Spector's first hit record. I wasn't in the same high school. He went to Fairfax. I went to three high schools in the Valley and still didn't graduate. So it was some mutual friend. Somebody said we should meet each other. He was funny. He didn't have a good backstory. I didn't have a good backstory. And we were able to empathize in a certain way. And he really made me feel loved. I was lost. And he was the sweetest. We'd ride around his beautiful blue 50s Corvette. One of the places that we liked to go on Wilshire Boulevard, it was a drive-in. And the girls were all on roller skates. You know, rock and roll going on and little chicks roller skating all over the place. And the trays were copper. There was no such thing as a teenager not drinking a malt. I used to drink glasses of whipped cream. It was good, just being teenagers in love. But I was a romantic. I wanted Snow White and the Prince, man. So when I first saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show, that was it. I just thought Elvis was so friggin' sexy. I was just a teenager like a billion others that felt the same way. But then it just so happened that I knew somebody in high school that knew Elvis. So Phil's sitting in the back of a car and he was saying something about, you know, we should get married, will you marry me? We were really in love, you know, we really, really were. I just told him I couldn't marry him until I met Elvis. I'm sure he probably couldn't believe his ears. (laughs) What? Are you kidding? You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you're in love with Elvis Presley. I told him my truth. (laughs) So that was that. There wasn't in love Lady Barber who wanted what she could not have. She climbed up the mountains too high 
She fell over and over again. Lynn Castle, you're listening to her song The Lady Barber from her album Rose Colored Corner. It's out next Friday. All right, coming up, we learn about another underrecognized woman from history. This one drew the map of the modern Middle East alongside Winston Churchill. Plus, we revisit some sage advice from the late great sports journalist Frank DeFord. When the dinner party download continues. She wanted to lie in strong meadows to feel capital of everywhere. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song from the band The War on Drugs, and we learn about the woman who opened the Arab world to the West. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and this week we're revisiting our interview with the late, great sports writer Frank DeFord. Frank contributed to Sports Illustrated magazine for over half a century, and he sadly passed away this week. When we spoke in 2012, he just released a memoir, and around that time, he'd also done his 1500th commentary for NPR's Morning Edition. Amazing. Many listeners know him for his pointed personal take on sports. Here's how Rico introduced him. And Frank, welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, You started as a sports writer with Sports Illustrated back in 1962. A lot has changed in sports journalism since then. What change has most excited you? Well, the fact that everything is on television now. Hmm. Good. The fact that all games, well, yeah. I mean, it makes it so much easier to get a handle on things. On the other hand, there are no secrets anymore. You, you can't discover anyone. Sports Illustrated, for example, has a kid on the cover who's 17 years old. Yeah. That didn't happen <laughs> yeah. back then. You wouldn't know, nobody knew who these high school players are. Now they're practically out of diapers. Well, LeBron James' ascent was yeah, that, monitored from, from high school. Yeah, and, and, school so, and yeah. so there's no backwoods in sports <laughs> anymore. Yeah. I had some great backwoods stories. When you look back, who's the the discovery that you're kind of most proud of? Well, I discovered Bobby Orr, the great hockey player. Yeah. Not because I was smart or anything, but because <laughs> I was covering basketball at the time. And the Bruins, the Boston hockey team, was the worst team. But the Boston Celtics writers would talk about this kid in Canada who was owned by the Bruins. In Canada, you could sort of own hockey players, practically take them away from their mother's breasts when they were being weaned <laughs> and put skates on them. And so I would hear about Bobby Orr when he was 14, 15, 16 years old. And when he was really ready to play at 18, I told Sports Illustrated that, that I knew who the next great hockey player was. And they believed you. And they and believed were, me. And I was and right. right. I was right. <laughs> you were right. You know, that's backwards the stuff, man. Tip. You can't do backwards <laughs> stuff. I mean, they, they would have... Every hockey person in the world would have known about Bobby Orr today if he if he came along when he was 12 years old. Yeah, right. Completely. He would have been on the front cover at age 12 or something. He would have been on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated already. Somebody like me, a basketball writer, couldn't have discovered it. Well, maybe this etiquette segment is perfect for you because you can help our guests discover answers to their, ah, their sports. Right. You like that pivot? Nice segue. It was okay. So we're going to ask some questions. <laughs> all right. All right. This one comes from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yes. There we go. Great sports town. And the question is, I think it's a great example of sportsmanship when soccer players from opposing teams trade jerseys at the end of a match. Uh, We Americans see this most often during the World Cup. Why don't other sports do that? Well, Chris, there is one other sport that's always done in America, and that's crew races. Really? Rowing? I think the crew guys do it after almost every race. You You can't take your shirts off after every game. 
Why not? You'd run out of shirts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's and <laughs> also, <laughs> us money. Can you imagine a football player trying to trade a shirt, getting it over the shoulder pads and all that sort of thing? So that, <laughs> that would be awkward. That yeah. limits the number of sports <laughs> yeah. that you can do this sort of thing. And then I don't like the idea of copycat. If you were a uh, basketball player, for example, to take your shirt yeah, off, and everybody'd say, What does he think he is? A soccer player? <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. And if some baseball players took their shirts off, people would leave the, they, fan, the I, fans I, would I, run. I don't so, want to see so, that. Let the, <laughs> let the soccer players and the crew racers take their shirts off as they've done for a century, but, but for goodness sake, let's not have copycatism in, in sports. There right. you go, Chris. It's a matter of tradition. <laughs> uh, all right, here's something from Robert in Chicago, Illinois. Talk about your great sports towns. Uh, why is it, despite the Cubs, why is it still tacitly accepted by baseball announcers, coaches, players, etc., for pitchers to bean opposing players and settle a score? It seems vindictive, and many players get injured this way. I feel like that part of baseball tradition should be left in the past. Very public radio question. Yeah, Robert, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Don't be such a sissy. Really? <laughs> now, first of all, they don't bean. Bean means hit the guy in the head. Now, that's serious. Nobody beans anybody. As a matter of fact, if you want to bean someone, you know you where you throw the ball? Where? You throw it behind his head because nobody ducks forward. If you see a ball coming near your head, yeah. you duck back. So if you really want to kill somebody in yeah. baseball, you throw the ball behind his head. I like right. how you turn this question into a tutorial. Yeah. <laughs> see, Robert? <laughs> We've learned something today. Yeah. But what we're really talking about here is brush back. That's a great word, brush back pitches. To, to get hit on the bicep or the thigh, yeah. they can handle that. You yeah. get a little bruise. This is yeah. why they take growth hormones. We're, so not, they don't, yeah. we're, we're not talking about <laughs> concussions in football. We're talking about a little bruise. You know, rub it with a rock and get out there and place it. <laughs> Does that work, right. rubbing with a rock? Yeah, I, that's what they always say. Rub it with a rock. Get out there, baby. <laughs> All right. I think, Robert, you have your answer. Yeah, there you go. All right. So we have a question from David in Fort Collins, Colorado. The question is, at what age should a grown man stop wearing their team's sports jersey in public? To me, it's always disconcerting to see a 40-plus-year-old guy at the grocery store wearing a Tebow 15 Denver Broncos jersey. Young grade schoolboys, no problem. So when is it not cool? I, I, I think David has a, has a good point here. Really? I think the answer should be, you can only wear a shirt someone your age. In other words, oh. how old is Peyton Manning? 35, 36? Yeah, yeah. So it would be okay for a 35-year-old man <laughs> oh, to wear I like a this. Peyton yeah, Manning interesting. shirt, but not a 38-year-old no. man. Then you've gone over it. <laughs> now, the only difference, the only difference uh -huh. is baseball. Now, think about this. Mm -hmm. Baseball managers, no matter how old they are, dress like children. <laughs> That's true. Jack McKeon was managing the Miami. They were then the Florida Marlins last year at the age of 80. Yeah. And wearing. Looks like a toddler. Wearing clothes. Right. Wearing, you know. So if you want to wear a baseball manager's <laughs> uniform. Go right ahead. You can do it up to the age of 80. <laughs> this is a great rule of thumb. I like I it. Like although this. it does require a whole lot of trivia knowledge on the part of the sports fan. you got to know the ages of all your well, guys. Basically, you can always wear a manager's uniform. But other than that, you're topping off around yeah. your mid-30s. Well, Colorado has Jamie Moyer pitching at the age of 49. That's incredible. So you want to wear a Jamie Moyer <laughs> 
<laughs> shirt and you're 48, go, go for it. Go for it. So the advice is if you're middle-aged and you really like baseball jerseys, you better quick become a Jamie Moyer fan. Cool. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think so. what Frank is really saying is you should really be thinking about getting a different wardrobe when you're on go to the <laughs> al- Go to the Almanac, check out the guys who are your yeah. age. I like this. It's DeFordometrics. That's it. As applied to fashion. Yeah, and I like the symmetry. We've, you started here telling us why we shouldn't take off our sports jerseys, and now we know when we should. Yeah. I like this. Frank DeFord, his new memoir is called Overtime. Frank, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Brendan. Sports writer and NPR commentator Frank DeFord speaking to us back in 2012. Which explains why we were still making fun of the Cubs. That's right. Frank passed away this week. His Uh, intelligence and humor will be sorely missed. Indeed. And folks, we're always here to answer your etiquette questions. Coming soon, chef and star food writer Samin Nosrat will be here to help. Send your questions to us via dinnerpartydownload.org. Lawrence of Arabia. It's one of the most lauded films of the 20th century, and it also cemented the legacy of archaeologist and diplomat T.E. Lawrence. And while his involvement in the Middle East during World War I was legendary, another person of equal influence has kind of been forgotten. Her name was Gertrude Bell, and there's a new documentary about her called Letters from Baghdad. Bell's accomplishments easily equaled Lawrence's. She traveled throughout the Middle East. She became the first female officer in the British forces, and she even helped draw the borders for present-day Iraq. Earlier this week, I spoke with the film's directors, Ziva Olbaum and Sabina Kreinbull. I first asked Ziva why there wasn't a Gertrude of Arabia movie. Great question. Great question. T.E. Lawrence's name was sort of created by Lowell Thomas, an American journalist who followed him during World War One, and actually made him famous by going around the country showing his films that he had documented over the time. And that's sort of how the whole name around T.E. Lawrence started. T.E. Lawrence, of course, is the basis of the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Exactly. Gertrude Bell was a contemporary of T.E. Lawrence, but as is often the case, he sort of took the primary place on the stage and she was forgotten. She called it the Orient. Others called it Arabia. Where exactly did Gertrude go and and what captivated her about that region? The love for the East actually started in Persia. She was sent there as a young woman right after she finished with a first in history at Oxford by her parents who had a lot of diplomatic connections. And so she went to visit them and that basically lit the fire in her for the East and then moved on to Jerusalem in 1900 and then started her first trip sort of through the Levantine area, Syria, Lebanon. And finally, her sort of culminating trip was to the desert city of Hyle, which is in Saudi Arabia today. And that was a very groundbreaking trip for her. It was it took her four months, over 1,500 miles on camelback. And she was the first woman to do this trip solo. So during that journey, she took meticulous notes. She wrote a book. She kept detailed letters. And she started to gain knowledge about the tribes in those regions and their customs more than almost anyone else at the time had. And it seems like that knowledge is what led from her being just a curious traveler to ultimately, you know, being one of the handful of people in the room with Churchill, (laughs) advising him how to carve up the Middle East. That's right. So 
What were some of her strengths that made her a real trusted, important player in the Middle East? Well, she had a number of qualities that all came together to make that happen. The first was that she was very gifted in languages. She set a goal to learn Arabic. When she was traveling, she picked up all the dialects of all the tribes. And the second thing that really made her stand apart from other Victorian travelers of the time was that she was truly interested in the people that she met. She had an authentic respect for them. So she was able to make these relationships in a way that uh, many people were not able to. And the fact that she was a woman and dressed as a British woman of a certain class made it easier in some ways for her to walk into the tents of the sheikhs and sit down. How so? Well, because she was a bit of a curiosity, because out of the desert Mm. rode this British woman with all of her china and dressed beautifully in the Western clothing of the day. And I think she took them a little off guard. She was in that way, as a woman, not a threat. A man would have potentially be really a threat and be much more questioned in terms of his intention, whereas for her, she came across as so sincere and straightforward and truly interested that it she wasn't in any way felt as a danger. And yet some of her peers in the British Foreign Service were a little bit threatened about working alongside such a knowledgeable woman. We have a really great quote from one of our academic advisors, who is Priya Satya at Stanford University. And she said that for many, many decades, the going out into the desert was a test of masculinity for the Brits. And that when Gertrude Bell went out into the desert by herself, that it stopped being such a very special accomplishment. And so... She was um, took the wind out. Of- <laughs> she took the wind out of their <laughs> sails. Well, it seems like Gertrude's energy rose and fell parallel with the British project in the Middle East. When they took over Baghdad uh, and were trying to figure out what to do with it, she was motivated and alive and instrumental in in making things happen. And then, after a, a local king was elected or installed, depending on how you look at it, right. you know, the, the British hold on power loosened. And she grew depressed and ultimately died at the relatively young age of 58. Can you talk about the end of her career and her life? She died uh, of an overdose of sleeping pills. And we really have thought a lot about that and given that a lot of thinking and a lot of researching. And it was a combination of different things. But certainly one of the aspects was that she was marginalized in the colonial office. Yes. I mean, all her life, she we think of her as an adrenaline junkie. as She was always like that something needed to happen, something needed to be, something there had to be either something for her to do or something for her to, to be involved with. And so... Definitely that when when she wasn't needed anymore, that weighed on her. She has a great quote in one of her letters that says something like, at this point, the, you know, the exploration and the beginnings are over and it's left to the administrators. And I've never been very good as an administrator. It's a 
Sabina Kreinbull and Ziva Olbaum. Their documentary, Letters from Baghdad, hits theaters this weekend. All right. And folks, that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. But don't despair. Subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally, and you will hear exclusive extended cuts of our conversations with guests, plus our off-the-cuff conversations about culture at large. Go sign up. Not yet. First, let me tell you, the Dinner Party download would not exist without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, our associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and our intern Emerald Douglas. Engineering assistance this week came from Bill Lance. And now, before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from your weekend parties. By now, most folks know The War on Drugs is the name of a band, as well as a controversial policy position. Their new album comes out in August. It's called A Deeper Understanding. Here's a new single from it. It's called Holding On. Bon Appetit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And Ow! Ah, what the heck, Kai Rizdal? Don't sit so close to my microphones, gentlemen. You hit us in the arm with coffee mugs. Ah, rub it with a rock.